There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're just joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a series right now called Glittering Vices. It is a series where we are pairing a vice with a virtue. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but if you're brand new, it bears repeating for you as well, for all of us. And that is uh, one of the things that we believe here at City Church is that it's important not just to look at, at uh, vice or sin, but also virtue. And I said this a few weeks ago that, that preaching that just focuses on sin, it's not very hopeful. But preaching that just tickles the ears and focuses on what we want to hear, the, the virtue, it's not very helpful, all right, because it's not living in reality. And so preaching should be both hopeful and helpful. And so whether you're just visiting for the first time and you're going back home or one of our regulars, and then as you go out, you should always be thinking hopeful, helpful, uh, vice and virtue. And so this series that we're doing for the Lenten season here is doing exactly that. We are reflecting and we're contemplating on what it was that brought Jesus to the cross, but also what prepares us for the goodness of Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday. And this morning we're going to continue that series. And uh, by the way, I should have said this as well uh, earlier in the series, that the reason why we're looking at what are called the seven deadly sins, the reason why they're called the seven deadly sins, is that in particular, uh, the church considered historically that these are the types of things that they're deadly in part because they're hard to see. I was uh, the other day looking at smoke detector alarms, and, and you can get the carbon monoxide detectors as well built in, two and one, that sort of thing like that. And the reason why you have those is because carbon monoxide is a gas that is odorless. It's, uh, of course, colorless. Uh, you can't see it, certainly. And as a result, that is incredibly deadly. And I think that's what these deadly sins are like for us. And that is certainly true of the one we're looking at today, envy. Envy is just one of those things where we do not want to say it's true of us. And yet, Joseph Epstein was an essayist. He's older, I think he's mid-80s now. And he wrote a book years ago called Envy. And he, this is what he said about that. Most of us could still sleep decently if accused of anger or pride or lust or even greed. But to be accused of envy would be by far the worst. So clearly does such an accusation go directly to character. The other sins, though all have the disapproval of religion, do not so thoroughly or deeply demean, diminish, and disqualify a person. But you see, the stigma of envy is its enormous pettiness. And if that's true, the question for us is, uh, why does it trap us the way that it does? And how do we escape that? And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at envy in this way. We're going to talk about, really, what is it exactly? I know that we, we've all heard of it before, but actually, what is it? And the second, why is it so deadly? Why is it one of these deadly sins? And then finally, how do we get free from the trap? So let's look at the first thing here. And that is uh, why, uh, or excuse me, what it is. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again from the Psalm, chapter 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist begins on a great point, saying God is good, but... So what's the but for? Well, it has to do with that word prosperity. Now, the word prosperity there... In the original translation, Hebrew, is the word shalom. And so normally when we associate shalom, we associate it with, with righteousness. But what he's saying here is so suddenly, whoa, 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 the wrong people are experiencing prosperity. 
And in the midst of that, he feels envy. I want what they have, even the wicked. Now, there's another way to describe that. Here's the, if, if they really had a headline on what is envy, it's this. It's unholy jealousy. And then by saying that, that means that there is a certain type of jealousy, which is holy. And so look at Exodus 34, 14 with me. Put it on the screen here. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. In other words, the very character of God is something that's holy, a holy jealousy. The way to think about it is this. For those of you who are married, uh, this may, may hit home. But obviously, when you think about your marriage, you are jealous for your marriage. And what that means is that you are, are jealous for the good things that your marriage represents. And if a spouse were to step out on you and, and have an affair, emotional or physical, you would be jealous for your marriage. Because you're, you're uh, righteously indignant towards the violation of the boundary of the relationship. And so when it says that God is jealous, what he's saying there is that he's jealous for his people, the relationship that he has with his people. And so that is a good thing. But what is unholy jealousy? Well, there's a great movie that came out in 1984 called Amadeus. And Amadeus won eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture that year. And if you know the story, it's a fictionalized account of actually a a true story in the sense that uh, there were two composers, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Antonio Salieri, an Italian composer. Now, in reality, they did not have a rivalry the way that the movie portrays it. But if you know the movie, you've seen it. By the way, if you're a movie buff and you've not seen it, it's one of the top 100 films of all time considered. It's one of the greatest films, in my opinion, ever created. You must see it if you haven't already. But suffice to say, it begins with a scene of confession. Salieri is on his deathbed, and he believes that he's at least in part responsible for the death of Mozart. And there's a priest, and the priest has come to hear his deathbed confession. And the whole movie is about that confession, basically. And it begins with a priest who, who knows something of Salieri, but, but doesn't consider him famous at all. And, and Salieri says, well, do you know any of my, my tunes? And so he begins to to play a tune, and, and the priest says, I, I don't know that one. Uh, well, what about this one? He begins to play another tune, and the priest now is beginning to feel uncomfortable. He's not recognizing any of this guy's music, and he knows that he should, maybe. And no, sorry, I don't know that one either. It plays the third one, same result. He goes to the fourth tune, and as soon as he starts playing it, Immediately, the priest goes, oh, I know that one, I know that one. He begins to sing as Salieri is playing it. And suddenly, Salieri stops, and a sour look is upon his face. He says, that was not mine, that was Mozart. Unholy jealousy. Look, let me say two things about, then let me now define for you unholy jealousy with, with two things. One, comparisonitis. Compares, it's the disease of comparing ourselves. And so uh, I want you to think about it with me in this way. Well, what does it mean to, to compare ourselves in that area? Well, it always begins in the area of competency for us. Let me give you an example. Uh, some of you like to run, right? And, and none of, I don't think anyone in here does it for a living, okay? And that's the point. And so you like to take 5K races, 10Ks maybe, right? We've even had fun runs here uh, at City Church that we've had over the years. And so if you like to run five, uh, 5K runs, but it's not what you do for a living, and you don't win the 5K race, how hard does it hit your heart that you didn't win the 5K, the fun run this year? Not at all, probably. 
Like, yeah, oh, you know, I wish I would have had a better time maybe, but, but you're not in rivalry with the person that won that fun run. But you're a writer, let's say, by trade, and you run fun runs. But then someone, another writer, they write something, a composition, same time that you do. But you're writing, no one notices. But their writing wins all the praise, all the accolades. Now, how do you feel about that competition? You see the difference there. Envy always hits us in the place of either our true competency or perceived competency. You know, social media, by the way, does an excellent job of this. All marketing does that. All social media marketing does a great job of showing you what you don't have. Instagram does this. So maybe in your perceived sense of competency around parenting, you see that family that you've known forever. And, oh, my gosh, their kids look amazing, don't they? And their, you know, their kids, they got into the right colleges. They got into the right universities. And, you're, you know, the reality of your life is different, right? Now, of course, the reality of their life is probably different as well. But on Instagram, everything looks perfect, doesn't it? Right? And social media, again, is marketing is so good about showing us what we don't. So we compare synitis. So envy begins with comparison in the areas of our competency, you see. And you may be saying, well, Scott, is that true for a pastor? The answer is yes. Yeah, so we have areas of competency. I have areas of competency you know, around preaching or shepherding. One of the things that's happened during the pandemic, and we know this, you've heard this, even in secular writing now, they've remarked about the decline of the church numbers during the pandemic, and that it hasn't recovered and probably won't be. Okay, fine. Well, that was true for City Church as well. And, and uh, so I would say of all, like uh, dozens and dozens of pastor friends around the nation, and I'd say on average four out of five, eight or nine out of ten of those pastors had the same uh, scenario happen there that happened here. There's a decline. But I can think right now of one or two friends that didn't happen. And actually, during the pandemic, their numbers went up. And you know what I felt? You know what I felt. Or else I wouldn't be telling you right now. I was like, how is that possible? Right? And so I didn't see what was normal. I saw what I didn't have. And I, I'm not going to go as far as to say that, that I wanted them to, to not experience. But I didn't also feel rejoicing for them. That's the key here. You see, envy takes away the passion and desire to rejoice for other people. Like, what would be normal? Congratulations. And isn't it easy for you to congratulate someone if they're not in your industry? Right? Great job. Great job. But, man, when it's you and you're not experiencing it, look out. I love what uh, Francis Bacon said centuries ago. Envy is ever joined to the comparing of a man's self. And where there's no comparison, no envy. You know. And at least the second thing. Comparisonitis there. That kind of that first part of the unholy jealousy. Here's the second part. And it's something that, that didn't quite make it into the English language. It's in the German. And uh, forever there it will stay, evidently. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude literally means to weep for another's joy, for another's success. Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the early progenitors of the list of the seven deadly sins, he said it is the sorrow for someone else's success. To sorrow for one another, for another's success. Or as someone else put it, to be unhappy for someone else's happiness. There's a great article that was written just a few years ago in an English newspaper called The Guardian. Uh, the author, her name, she wrote a book as well called The Secret Joys of Schadenfreude. 
In that article, Tiffany Watt Smith says this, Sometimes it is easy to share our delight reposting memes of a disgraced politician's resignation speech. Far harder to acknowledge are the spasms of relief which accompany the bad news of our successful friends and relatives. They come involuntarily, these confusing bursts of pleasure swirl through with shame. And they worry us, not just because we fear that our lack of compassion says something terrible about us, because they point so clearly to our envy and inferiority and how we clutch at the disappointments of others in order to feel better about our own. See, that's the other component. The reason why we go to envy in the first place is because we're feeling inferior about our own sense of self-worth. You will not envy anywhere outside of an area of a sense of inferiority. I don't measure up. And if I can't measure up, I want to bring them down, shot in for them. Or, as is put in The Simpsons, I don't know, are there any Simpson friends out there based upon that response? I'm not so sure. Uh, I'm not much of a fan myself, but man, there was a great episode called Leftorium. Do you know this episode, Leftorium? It's about Ned Flanders, the neighbor of Homer Simpson. Ned Flanders, of course, is that, that do-gooder who can never do wrong, right? And Homer Simpson, of course, always feels anger towards the do-gooder, Ned Flanders. Well, Ned Flanders wants to open up a store called Leftorium, which is a store dedicated to left-handed people, my kind of man. Right? Some of you don't know I'm left-handed. But, you know, I was like, oh, I would love a store just for left-handers. But Homer Simpson doesn't want him to be successful. And so there's this backyard barbecue scene in, in, the, in the show, and, and they take a chicken wing, and they're going to break it. And, of course, you're supposed to make a wish on the chicken wing right there. And, uh, and so they do, and Ned Flanders says, well, don't tell me what you're, you're, what you're wishing for, but we see what he was wishing for. And it was schadenfreude for Ned Flanders. It was Ned Flanders wouldn't have any, the first scene of his dream fantasy is that there are no customers at Leftorium. And then he's penniless. He's indebted, thrown in jail, that sort of thing. And then the very last scene is he goes to an early grave as a result of knowing showing up at a store. And then he says, oh, that's taking it too far. And so he backs his fantasy back up to do, oh, he's just indebted instead, right? And of course, if you know the rest of the show, now it actually happens. And now he feels horrible Somehow he's responsible for what happened to Ed Flanders, and I won't go into the rest of the show. But suffice to say, they're schadenfreude. And we could laugh at that a little bit, but man, isn't it true for some of us, right? And if it's true for you, you need to ask this question secondly. Why is it so deadly? Why is it such a poison? Why are we so, even though we, we say, man, I, don't, I wouldn't want that in our life, and yet we do it all the time. Why? Why is it so deadly? Because it destroys relationships. It destroys relationships. Let me, let me put this into the language of a, a couple things here, I think, is the, the heart of the problem for why it's so deadly. And it's an issue of space and time. Now, some of you go, wait, this sounds very philosophical suddenly, space and time, like a space and time continuum or something like that. It's sort of like those shows where, where the, you know, the, 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 the motif of the show, the narrative, the plot is, is about someone getting lost in time, right? And they get stuck there and they're trying to get back to... Uh, their, their modern time, that sort of thing like that. I think for what we see here, especially with the psalmist, is that they are stuck. You say, what do you mean by that? Here's the first thing about problem of, um, of space. I don't know if you've ever heard the term zero sum before. But zero sum is uh, regards, it's actually in math, it regards the fact that there's only so much of something out there. And so imagine that there are 100 pieces of, of coin 
you know, and there's only two people, you and the other person. And so you've got 60 coin, I've got 40. And so I want more of your coin. And so if I get more of your coin, you have less of it. That's zero sum. There's not, there's not a lot of it out there or there's not more out there. There's only so much of it. And one of my mentors said it well, said that, that, this, uh, that, that envy is a, is a scarcity mindset. And what's happening for the psalmist is, even though by the end of the psalm, he says, oh, no, I, God, I return back to verse 1. You are good, and I know that you sit on your throne for all of eternity. But what happens in verses 1 through 3, verses 2 and 3 in particular? He's stuck. He says, all I see right now is injustice. All I see right now is inequity, right? And so it's a scarcity mindset. By the way, the cause for most war is a scarcity mindset, by the way. Okay? It's that it happens where there's droughts of all sorts, financial and climate, so forth, like, there's only so much of something, and we need more of it than you. Someone's got to lose. Someone's got to win. That's a scarcity mindset. And that's how envy works, you see. And, and so what it leads to is the second thing here. And so all I see right now is what's in front of me physically in a closed universe, as I like to call it. And, and that's exactly what the psalmist is going through right now. But it leads to the second thing, that's the time horizon problem. And so, and so look at, with me at chapter, excuse me, Proverbs uh, 23, verses 17 and 18. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. So he says, verse 17, envy, it's a problem. Why? Because we've lost sight of the time horizon. Where we're headed, there's a future, and you will not be cut off. See, at the heart of, of the problem here is that we are distracted by today. And so all we see, when we, and look, we live in a world of inequity, don't we? The very same thing that the psalmist says here about there are people who seem to be prospering. Oh my gosh. You know, the whole war of Ukraine is bringing that home to roost. We've learned, you, you now know more about oligarchs in Russia than you ever thought imaginable, right? I mean, but listen, they have been, they've been profiting into the billions for decades. It's only now really coming to light because of things related to the war. And I, I mean, there, you talk about shalom on the, at least an outward, external shalom. Like they have the world, they, I mean, have power and influence. Like you know, the, we could go on and on. Even in our own country, we could think about different ways that there's an inequity. But look what happens to here to uh, our, our, our psalmist. He says in verses 21 and 22, it leads to bitterness. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. And ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. And so, what is he saying? Envy has reduced me to being acting more like an animal. In other words, I've lost sight of the time horizon that I'm made in the image of God, and that because God sits on His throne, I know where I'm headed, and I can act differently in light of the future today. Instead, I'm acting like an animal. I'm acting according to instinct. It's a dog-eat-dog world, we might say. And I think it leads to a paradox. When you are eaten up on the inside, there's that quote on the outside of your bulletin there from one of the ancient church fathers, John Chrysostom. He says that like, envy is like a moth that eats away at your garments. The other day we found out that we have moths in our closet because they've been eating the wool out of my sweaters. This is a real thing for me, okay? That was funny, I thought, but evidently not. Anyway, the point being is, back to John Chrysostom here. It's like a cancer that eats away at us, is envy, he says. And it leads to this paradox where the more that you focus on today, 
Now we're told carpe diem, seize the day. That's where the pleasure, that's where the joy is. But the more that this world is all that there is, the more that the present is all that you have, the less joy that you will have. I was showing a, a clip from, uh, to the fellows class. They'll remember this. Uh, just this past week, I've been teaching the fellows here. And there's a clip from uh, another great movie from the 1980s, Chariots of Fire. This is evidently a uh, sermon on films that won Academy Awards from the 1980s, Chariots of Fire. And in 1980, it won, if you know the story, it's about Eric Little and Harold Abrams. They're both uh, British citizens. Uh, of course, Little's from Scotland. Scotland, uh, excuse me, uh, Little is a uh, devout Christian. And if you know the story, he won't run on Sundays. But there's this one scene, this is a scene that I showed them, where Abrams really is in a, in a place of just deep rivalry, like Salieri was with Amadeus. And there's this 100-meter race, and they run, and Little wins. Now, Little, of course, when he runs, he feels the pleasure of God, right? And so he experiences joy. In the very beginning of the clip that I showed them, uh, Little goes up to Abrams, and he says, he congratulates him. And he says, uh, good luck out there today. And he means it, and you know it. Now, Abrams comes in second. He loses to Little. And the scene that I showed them is where Abrams is sitting in the stands of the stadium by himself. Everyone's gone home. And all he can do is replay over and over and over again how he lost that race. And his girlfriend comes up to him and is saying, Harold, Harold. And he's brooding with a capital B. He can't even hear his girlfriend. Finally, she says, Harold, snap out of it. Like, like you are a great runner. Like, it's okay that you came in second. And then he lits up on her. He's like, I don't want to finish in second. If I can't win, I won't run. I thought, what a picture of what envy does. It rots you from the inside out, strips you of all your joy. The, the writer of Proverbs um, elsewhere, he puts it this way, chapter 14, verse 30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy makes the bones rot. There's that cancer again. And, and I think the last thing I want to say is that, before we talk about the freedom, is this is a picture of a spiritual quandary. The problem is ultimately spiritual. Why do I say that? You see, when we say that we feel resentment and our envy, we begrudge others their success, ultimately we begrudge God. And here's why. Genesis chapter 3. Satan is the ultimate marketer. Just like what we do today with marketing. You show what you don't have. You create envy. Marketing depends upon envy being alive and well in us in order to work and sell things. And what does Satan say? Oh, yeah, he promised you perfection. He, he, he gave you paradise, but he held back one thing. And I'm going to shine a spotlight on that one thing. What are you going to do about it, Adam, Eve? And what do they do? They resent God. And so they believe Satan, who already resents God. And now they join with Satan in that lie. They begin to resent God. Look, that is the basis for envy. Here's why I know that. Because in the place where you struggle with envy, here's what it's evidence of. There's something else you're living for other than God. You see, the things, the places of our competency, those are ordinate things. Those are good things in and of themselves. They're ordinary things, but we make them inordinate. We make them ultimate. And so we need to be successful. We need the accolades. We need the reputation. And when we don't have that, that's when we feel inferior. God says, no, no, you have a name, you have a reputation, you have all the success that you will ever truly need to know who you truly are 
You're not a brutish beast. You're made in my image. I'm your father. You're my son. You're my daughter. But we forget that when we make something ordinate inordinate. And so that is the place. So whenever you see envy in your life, know this. That's the place of something ordinate becoming inordinate. That's the place where that one thing becomes what you are living for. It will rob you of life, as we've said here. So, in closing, how do we get the freedom? How do we, how do we in those places of our competency where we're struggling to really rejoice for the success of our friends and colleagues, you know, how do we get to the place of freedom where we can get back to the rejoicing and forget about ourselves in a good way? And the answer is this. You have to have a new affection. Look at verses 23 through 25. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You see, what's happened is at the beginning, he desired what? He desired the wicked shalom of the arrogant. And by the end, he's come to his senses. No longer is he like a brutish beast. No longer, now he sees, and what we didn't see is in verse 17, he goes into the sanctuary to worship God. And he comes out of that place saying, I remind, remind myself, I remember who you are. And in light of who you are, it changes everything. I have new desire. If you want to deal with the old affection of envy, you need a new one. Listen to what Thomas Chalmers, who's a Puritan, he said in a work called The Explosive Power of a New Thing. It's very Puritan, by the way. In a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away and all the things are to become new. The heart is not so constituted, and the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Again, a very Puritan way of simply saying this. If you want to deal with envy, don't focus on envy. But focus on what it's there for, or what it's supposed to be there for. And here's the answer, the virtue, abundant love. Abundant love. When we focus on abundant love, envy melts away. And we see it right here again in this passage. Look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. In other words, I may be second fiddle. I may come in second place. I may be passed over, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here's his picture of the psalmist who says, I was not grounded. I was stumbling in my steps. What did that to me? Envy did that to me. I forgot who you were. I became a brutish beast. I was rotting in my bones. But what happens? New affection. I remember now, you're my father. I'm your beloved son, your beloved daughter, in whom you are well pleased. Worship. You see, the answer to envy is to remember God. It is to remember his character. And what does he say to us? He says, I, I have abundant love for you. And you say, well, Scott, that's great. I hear that you say that from the psalmist, right? But how do I actually get it? And the answer is you must look to Jesus. If envy is your struggle this morning, if it has been your struggle, or you sense it probably will be in the future, in those moments, you must look to Jesus and Jesus alone. Why? Do I say that? Because consider the life of Jesus. For three and a half years of ministry, he had the most unenviable life imaginable. He had a life that, where he was constantly in poverty. 
a nomadic life. He didn't even have his own home, right? And then how does his life end? On a cruel Roman cross of execution. And yet, in his whole life, never once did he complain. Never once did he feel entitled. Never once did he say, well, I deserve this. No, he condescended. He was sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he took on human flesh. Why? To free us from envy. To take our sin of envy, that vice, place it upon the cross. Why? So that we would know abundant love on Sunday morning. Resurrection Easter morning. And so, if you want to see envy melt away in your heart, if you want to see it erode, look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. Brothers and sisters, it's the only place that will truly... And what you see is this. You see that God has sent the future to today. That God has helped you see that you can live today. Remember what it said in there in verses 17 and 18. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Listen to what Colossians 1.27 says. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What will erode envy at the end of the day is hope. And you know you have a future, and the future has come today. And you know who you are in Christ, the hope of glory. And so may envy be eroded in your heart, may it be eroded in my heart as your pastor. And may we live with abundant life and flourishing shalom for God's people and for those who are not yet God's people in this city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Though we are, though our steps stumble, though we lose heart, um, you have not abandoned us. Jesus, you were forsaken. That's why you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Why? Why those words? Because we were not forsaken. So that we would be filled with abundant love. So therefore, we would have the constitution. We would have the groundedness that would allow us, therefore, then to rejoice with the success of others, even when it seems to escape us. Jesus, help us in that escape. Help us to escape the deadly trap, the poison, the bitterness, the rotting. Help us to escape that in our relationships, whether in our marriage, whether with a colleague in our work environment, in the athletic stadium, social media, wherever it might be, Father, let us escape envy by focusing on the new affection, your affection for us as father to a son and daughter. Let that fill us. Let that fill our bones, giving new life to our hearts. We praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.